there's like a deeper meaning behind all of this. Like it's, it's how you were raised, what you were taught, what you were conditioned to believe. This is the Desi Condition. What's up, Bondus? Welcome back to the Desi Condition. I'm Thanushri. I'm the creator, founder, host of the Desi Condition. Today, we are talking to Mrinal Gokhale, author of Saya Unveiled, which is a book containing stories of South Asian mental health. I like to think of it a little bit selfishly, probably, as the book version of this podcast. So I'm very excited to have this conversation. So Mrinal, hi, how are you? Thank you for coming on the show. I'm good. Thank you for having me. So, Mrinal, who are you? Where are you? What do you do? The works. Um, so, I am a Wisconsin. I'm Wisconsin based in the U.S. Obviously, and um, I have been a freelance writer for five years. I work in tech during the day. Formerly worked in marketing communications. Um, I used to be a freelance journalist um, for two minority-owned publications in my city, and. That's how the inspiration to write my book came about. Um, throughout my career in freelance journalism, I had covered mental health related, mental health awareness related um, um, events for both papers I wrote for a black paper and a Hispanic paper. And um, in quarantine, I decided that I wanted to write a book. And then um, the idea was inspired from the fact that throughout my journalism career, I feel that I saw little to no um, awareness being put out there about mental health in the Asian community. Nice. So was there anything from your background before writing for the black and Hispanic publications that kind of prompted you to get into that work to begin with? Um, so I've always liked writing and um, I think that I knew that I wanted to do that for a living since like I was quite young. Um, but I would say that um, what this book does, it combines my interest in writing and also in mental health and my fascination with the psychology and the human brain and the DSM-5. And uh, the reason being because I have benefited off of therapy in the past in college and a few years afterwards. And throughout that, I didn't, I didn't really meet anyone in my own in the South Asian community that did that did so too. A uh, quick detour. A lot of people don't know what DSM five is, so can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sorry, DSM five as in the diagnost diagnostic um, something manual, which is used for di diagnosing mental health conditions in the psychology world by therapists and counselors. Awesome, cool, thanks. So. You kind of got into this, but why this book? Yes. So why did you choose to write this book and why did was it set up the way that it is set up? Um, so I decided to, um, when I was kind of think, debating on ideas on what I'm going to write about in my book, um, I had a bunch of different ideas in the works and I, I figured that this one um, does the best job combining my interest in um, mental health and psychology and um, kind of takes on a bit of a journalistic writing approach in the sense that um, it tells 11 true stories all told in third person in addition with direct quotes. So it's like you could almost think of every story as like a long form journalism article so to speak. And what I did is I interviewed each individual regarding their mental health journey um, in person and through um, written interviews. And I wrote their stories um, based on those words. And then I asked them to look at it, make sure that they were okay with it, make sure that everything was factually accurate about it before I published it. And um, 
my original intention was to feature half males and half females, but um, I was having difficulty finding men, which is kind of another story. But um, so that's why I took them, took what I could. So two men, the rest of them females, and they're all South Asians that were um, that were raised in the Western part of the world. Okay. Oh, okay. So this is definitely featuring uh, diasporic mental health. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What were, as you were going through these stories, so you, you interviewed people, I assume, right? Yes. So as you were going through these interviews, compiling these stories, were there kind of any themes that kept coming up? Um, so, so a few comments. So after I, t- I finished speaking to all those 11 people, um, there were a few patterns that I picked up on. Um, the first pattern being that I came to notice that those who said that they were, um, that they have parents that were either born in the West or came to the West at a young age um, were the parents that were a lot easier to talk to um, about their mental health journeys, um, which appears to be because um, because South Asian countries do stigmatize mental health and have very little to no education on it. So I think that coming to the West um, at a younger age puts ha- makes for, I guess, more progressive viewpoints on mental health. Yeah. So when you were looking for these stories or people to feature in your book, were you looking for anything in particular or were you kind of like, hey, let me find some interesting people with some interesting stories and see what happens? I'm interested in your creative process. More of the second one. So what I did is I looked up South Asian mental health in a Google search, and I found several organizations that do work around South Asian mental health. I emailed them and said, I was wondering if you had any employees, board members, followers that would be interested in telling their stories for my book. They have the option to alter their name if they want to protect their privacy. And then those organizations put out like submission calls in their email lists and stuff like that. And or in social media. And then those people started emailing me saying they're interested in telling my story. And then I asked them, okay, can you please fill out the short questionnaire for me where I asked them questions like, you know, a little bit about their background, you know, where they're from, their ethnic background, their perhaps religious background, how they identify gender wise and the things, the mental health obstacles that they've had and when, and then um, from there I would speak to them verbally and tell them more about what the book is going to look like. And then um, kind of decide if I wanted to feature them, if they were still interested. And then that from there, I would have like verbal interviews in addition to written ones. Um, So, and so I will say, so Originally, um, my goal was to have half males, half females, but that fell through. Um, so in addition to that, I wanted, I was hoping that um, I, in my, in my head, I pictured that every interviewee would have um, a diagnosis of something, but um, over time, the more people responded to these calls, I found that there are people that have never been diagnosed with anything, but still benefited off of therapy. Um, that kind of threw me off at first, but I was like, hey, no, this is a good thing because um, part of the stigma in our culture is that there, it's looked down upon to see a therapist in the first place. But doing this adds more variety in my book. And it also teaches, I think, especially the older generations that you don't have to like be suffering from psychosis or even have, you know, a a label from the DSM-5 whatsoever to, to benefit from therapy. You can just go to get over an adversity in your life. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's very true. Um, it's very much therapy is very much labeled as something that you need as an answer to something happening in your life or to a condition, but it can actually just be a way to maintain the like even if you're in a very good place like it's it can be a way to maintain that too i mean therapy really does serve a wide range of purposes and it's not just a last resort right it's very much treated as a last resort um so i really like that and that that's a very cool realization to come to uh that that actually answers the question that i was gonna have for you which is what did you learn from this book uh, obviously what you just said uh, is there anything else that you got from it yeah, so some other patterns I picked up on um, when speaking to these various people were that a lot of people seem to experience a mind-body connection in relation to the things that they have. Um, so, for example, um, a handful of people in the book have anxiety, which doesn't surprise me because that's like one of the most common mental health conditions out there. But um those people also, there were people that experience anxiety also in relation to things such as GI issues. So things such as reflux, um, vomiting, difficult appetite difficulties and stuff in relation to their anxiety came up a lot, for example. Um, another pattern that I picked up on, um, which probably shouldn't surprise a lot of people, was things such as the resistance to tell your elders that you're struggling. Um, and I think that it's and that has a lot to do because um, these people knew that um, they might have been raised under a very anti-failure mindset growing up um, in that they had these parents that worked so hard to come to the West that um, they also want their kids to do so. And they all, they might have inadvertently um, put the message in their head that when you um, admit that you're struggling, when you admit that you have a disorder of some sort, that kind of ruins it all for you. Some people also said that that they felt as though their parents only took their mental health seriously when they learned that they were on medication or something too. Okay. Interesting. So they took it seriously. Does that, what is, what does that look like taking it seriously? Like being more empathetic to it or kind of fighting back about it and saying like, Hey, you really shouldn't be on medication. And what did that look like? Um, I guess the empathy part and addition and in addition, um, being like, okay, my kid really is struggling, um, is, and then, um, for some others, it could also be, um, realizing that what they're dealing with is something that can't go away just in a heartbeat, that it's something that they have to work at for the rest of their life. Um, for another parent, it could be saying, you know, okay, something in your life needs to change. Um, let's figure out what that is so that there isn't a need for you to take therapy or go to medication. Mm -hmm. Have you seen parents reflect on themselves if to, to figure if they are the issue? Um, they don't say it that way, but at the same time, it makes me wonder if they may be thinking it, even if they're not outwardly admitting it in some cases. So, for example, um, there was one story where there was the pattern that um, the parents would would not hide their would hide their child's issues to extended family members and outside of the household, right? Um, which I'm sure that a lot of people listening here will say that they have been nurtured, that what happens in the house stays in the house. Um, I will say that um, there was a story where um, there was a lot of denial, there was a lot of cover up with their kids issues. But then over time, then they started 
once they started to get educated that these issues are not going to just go away. It's something lifelong. It's something that requires maintenance. Then they started to advocate for their child taking medicines and going to therapy. Then they started to open up to other extended family members. Then they started to open up to um, seeing their child um, after they saw their child suffer, then they saw their child recover. Then they started to, I guess, become supportive of, hey, you, you do what you got to do in order to get better. I think on some level, when something really traumatic happens to your kid, every parent is probably going to sit and wonder, like, what did I do wrong? No matter what it what it is, even if it has nothing to do with them, like most parents are going to try to sit and reflect anyway. Um, and the it is a tough thing, thing for them. I mean, the mental health education process is so hard. It's really hard to understand because, you know, the part of the natural learning process, okay, I'm a teacher, so I'm going to like nerd out on teacher stuff right now. But like part of the learning process involves tangible things, visual things, visual representations. And like, we really don't get that with mental health um, until you really start to see those physiological problems that you, you know, that I'm seeing like, okay, physically, I'm taking medication or physically, this is what I've done in response to something going on that you can't see. So I find it really, I find it really fascinating. And I think that also connects to the failure to see mental health as a spectrum. Um, I think that due to how the media paints mental health and also due to the lack of education in South Asian countries, um, I think the term mental health is associated with being mentally ill. I think that mental illness is associated with things such as psychosis um, to a lot of South Asians. Um, and I think that that's why um, there's a handful of people in my book that reported that it was only when things got serious that they started to take it seriously when it came to their kids. Yeah. So I wonder, and it's fine if you don't have a response to this question, it's just coming into my head right now, but I wonder if you have any thoughts on how we can get our our communities or our families a little bit closer to the issue before the point where things like therapy becomes a last resort and rather is something that is more preventative? Well, I think it's about changing the attitudes around it. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, maybe if more South Asians were to work in therapy, maybe some of them would be a little less resistant to sending themselves or their kids because they're around someone that looks like them, that grew up somewhat like them, that understands the culture and religion dynamics that they were raised under. Um, that's, I think, a big one. In addition, I think that um, people, sh we, sh we need we need to teach um, the elder generations of South Asian to stop associating the term mental health and mental illness interchangeably. Um, everyone has physical health. Same principle applies to mental health. If you do things that make you feel good, you are nurturing your mental health. Um, if you if you're emotionally if you're emotionally suffering, it doesn't matter if you're in a hospital bed in in a psychiatric unit of a hospital or sitting in front of um, a therapist across the couch. You you should take that seriously just as much as you would your physical health. And um, I think also um, now what's ironic is that one person in my book stated that things such as yoga, mindfulness, meditation originate in Asian countries, yet there isn't a term for mental health in the Hindi language, for example. My parents didn't know, at least. They, they knew how to say mentally sick. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I have seen that there is one in Bangla, but um, I, I can't even remember what it is right now. I've just seen it, and it wasn't because I learned it from my parents. And I also think that um, I think one of the biggest problems with mental health stigma, period, is that um, people don't see um, different treatments as being equals to each other. And what I mean by that is that I have learned both through personal experience and um, in writing this book that as redundant as it sounds, different things work for different people. And what I mean by that is in my book, for example, not everyone in my book took medication. Not everyone in my book even went to therapy. So it's so I think that ultimately goes back to um, seeing both Eastern wellness and Western wellness as legitimate options understanding that if one does not work out for you, no one's going to force you to keep on doing it. You can always try another and it's a process discovering what works for you. You may have to try multiple things, multiple things over an extended time period, experience a few setbacks starting out, but that's kind of the nature of the journey. Yeah. I think just like the fact that mental health can be a result of an intersectionality of a lot of different things, whether it's like biochemical it's physiological it's like situational um whatever it is versus something from your culture that mental health treatment also needs to be treated intersectionally and i find it so interesting there was an episode i did last season with dr vijayatha saint she's um she's a psychologist and she has a lot of south asian patients and so she was saying how and i can't stop thinking about it it was like months ago and she was like you know, in South Asian culture, traditionally, we have trusted people like gurus, um, elders, like spiritual leaders with our issues. But what here in the States, like we don't trust therapists. Th that's how we see like elders and etc. Um, but we don't do that here. And it's very interesting. Um, and you're right, like not everything might work for everybody. Or, but you, you try a combination of things like you, you figure out what works for you. Yeah. And I think that um, since I'm starting to see more South Asian therapists out there, I hope that kind of partially at least begins to solve the problem so that maybe decades from now, the stigma will perhaps be gone. And um, I appreciate you bringing up the intersectionality, too, because another one of my goals in writing the book is that, you know, maybe if white counselors or other POC counselors are to read it, they'll be able to connect better and more easily with their um, South Asian clients if they come across any in, in a way so that um, the South Asian clients don't feel quite as nervous or quite as judged or go through as much of an annoying process in educating um, their counselor and their cultural dynamics because um, I feel like any patient and therapist um, relationship takes up a lot of time to build to build in terms of the trust and stuff like that. But coming from a different culture kind of adds an extra layer to that. Yeah, actually, you bring up something I, I remember reading in your book, you were talking about how uh, mental health treatment is seen as something that is for the Caucasians, you know, it's like stereotypically not something that we are supposed to be doing. And so I'm wondering, this is an opinion question, but I'm wondering if you think that the conversation around mental health in general is very Eurocentric. I have certain thoughts about this, but I'm in interested in what you think. Yes, in the sense that um, there, the concept of therapy is a Caucasian-founded principle. Um, it's the DSM-5 is developed by 
by white people. Um, white people dominate the field in which they're working. Um, white people may um, use their own, bring their own cultural dynamics into their treatments and stuff, even if they don't do that on purpose or realize it. Um, so, and then also there's the idea that mental health, different disorders may present somewhat differently in different ethnic groups, um, different life experiences driven by culture and ethnic groups may cause and contribute to mental health disorders. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I, I think that I also think that sometimes it seems like we have the same thoughts about this, but I also think that sometimes in the South Asian community, when we talk about mental health to me, and I don't know, you can tell me if you feel differently, but sometimes I think we end up talking a lot about things like decolonization or race relations as like contributors to mental health. And those are totally fair, like totally fair. They absolutely contribute yep. to mental health. But a part of me feels like even that conversation is very Eurocentric. So um, they should be having con more conversations on what then? ourselves um on ourselves and healing um i think to blame structures on imperialism is far too recent i think we really need to dig into the human psyche from way before that um and also definitely obviously acknowledge imperialism but um i think that yeah, digging into, like, historically just humans, um, I think there is a part of us that's a little bit beyond culture. Um, at least, like, when you think about what they call, I guess, the lizard brain or whatever they call it, um, there's a part of that that affects our mental health, um, that, that the mental health stems from. Um, again, not to say that culture or things like that don't matter. Is that like an um, anthropological anthropologist type term that has to do with evolution? That yeah, the lizard brain. I mean, but it's like it's like the cave brain, right? It's like the the brain before all of the 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 levels of society that um, we have learned in modern day. Yeah, um, yeah. I haven't heard that term before, but um, I do agree with you that. Um, decolonizing is critical to talk about and to do, but it's not the only thing that we should look at. Um, I think, and it's interesting you brought this up because recently I've been reading a lot of articles about things such as the evolutionary history of certain conditions too. And I think that, um, the, and I think that looking more into that um, from a historical standpoint for our people could probably be quite helpful as well. Yeah, it's not the only thing we should look at. That's a much better way to say it. <laughs> That's exactly what I was trying to say. And I did not say it as eloquently. So thank you for that. So I'm interested in, if, if you're open to talking about, what have led you to getting interested in mental health in general? Sure. So um, let me talk a little bit about, you know, the beginnings. Um, so I have um, suffered, I had, I had suffered with um, pretty chronic anxiety since, um, th since I was a little kid. And um, I got therapy for the first times when I was a college girl. Um, so, and I have some experience with the mind body connection as it relates to anxiety too. So um, I guess without boring you with my whole history, I'll just tell you a portion of um, it. So I experienced um, 
hormonal imbalance that led to severely irregular periods throughout my whole adolescence. And um, that was related to anxiety. And I know this because um, literally from age 12 to 19, um, whenever there was a school dance, whenever there was a dance recital in the dance classes I would take, whenever there was a major exam, whenever there was a family vacation or otherwise important event, I would get a period. And sometimes up to three per month. And um, yep, so um, it started getting particularly bad in college um, because I think that brought about more changes in life and I've been living with it that long. Um, I started skipping classes because the pain became too much. And um, finally, I got on a birth control to regulate that. So um, that helped with that. But um, one day, coincidentally, I was walking around in the student union and um, some guy at a table was like, do you want to take a free depression screening? I was like, sure. And then um, that questionnaire asked about a lot of different things, such as anxiety, such as OCD, such as uh, major depressive disorder, bipolar, whatever. And um, my markers were very high in the anxiety areas. And then he was like, would you like to work with one of our student clinicians um, for just $5 a session? And so I was like, okay, I'll try this out. And I went ahead and tried it out. And um, basically this 24-year-old um, graduate student um, in psychology um, gave me a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy um, that was heavily based on exposure therapy that helped to improve my anxiety. And by the time our work together was done in, in the year, um, the mark she when I first came in, um, the markers showed that I had quote unquote severe anxiety. And by the time I walked out, it was mild to moderate. What a serendipitous discovery in the student union. <laughs> right. Um, I wasn't, wasn't particularly looking for anything like that. It just kind of stumbled across me. But the day that I got my first intake session done um, is when I had that epiphany that, hey, this birth control is regulating my hormones, but I don't want to live with live like this with chronic worry. And if this could potentially help me, then I'm all for it. So after that experience, was that the first time that you kind of opened up to therapy or... Yes, my first experience ever in therapy. Like I never experienced it as like a kid or a teenager or anything. Um, the opportunity never really presented itself. And I will say that, um, yeah. <laughs> and that year, um, that same year that I ended therapy, I went back to visit India because we used me, we as a family used to go once every three years until I started working full time. Um, I went to India the same year I about the same year I ended therapy and I think several relatives commented to one of my parents like I'm surprised that she's chatting she's able that she's you know comfortable with us talking with us whatever um for and um I and in my head I was like that's a confirmation I think that this works because um so I told you that anxiety was what I had but specifically um the the tests that they did on me, the questionnaires they gave me showed that um, even though I meet enough markers for generalized anxiety disorder, most of my anxiety was provoked by social situations. And to back that up, um, any ask anyone and they'll tell you that I was painfully shy my entire childhood. 
Um, I struggle with it sometimes. I'm nervous as I'm talking to you right now, for sure. But um, much better than what I was before I ever had a day of therapy in my life. And much more friends and connections than I ever would have before then. Cool. Love that. So in terms of your home life or your family life, how involved are they in knowing about your mental health? Um, so I, I was living, I wasn't living with them throughout college and I didn't say anything to more than like a friend or two about that therapy experience starting then. And, um, they, they found out by chance because a bill came in the mail when I moved back in with them, but I went ahead and told them and, um, I didn't tell them initially cause I didn't know how they take it, but they actually seemed, they actually did take it. Okay. I mean, I think there was a little, um, thing of, someone said something to me, I think like, you know, how come you didn't list how I tried to help you be more social when you were little and why didn't that work? And I was like, sometimes some people need more of a catalyst. Sometimes you just need to walk into the student union. Apparently. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. That's, that's cool. Yeah. It's like therapy was something I had in my head when I was like a kid or a teenager, but, um, I, cause I would like see it on TV and stuff like that. And I feel like instinctually I knew that I needed it, but, um, the opportunity never really presented itself. And then all of a sudden an opportunity presented itself for $5 a session and I jumped on it. I, that reminds me that a lot of, um, the readers, your readers might realize, uh, uh, or I mean, um, you'll, you'll notice in my stories um, that a handful of people tried for the fir- therapy for the first time when they were college students, too. Hmm. That is interesting how that happens. Um, and then that brings up um, another pattern I have observed just in life, not just in my book, is that um, I feel like a lot of white kids start therapy younger, are paid for by their parents, sometimes forced to go by their parents, forced to take medicines by their parents, um, have parents that sit in on sessions with them, whereas most South Asians I know kind of did everything on their own when they were 18 and older. And then some may have had parents that slowly supported them over time. Others just left them out of it. Yeah. I don't know if you said that you, um, no, you basically just said you uh, tested for anxiety slash social anxiety, right? Um, But you did talk about how that anxiety related to physiological conditions. And what I think about a lot as someone who like kind of lives in the mental health South Asian slash blogosphere type of thing is the intersectionality between mental illnesses too, right? Because oftentimes, so like I have ADD and, but ADD doesn't exist in a vacuum. They either have depression or an eating disorder or some drug abuse problem or X, Y, and Z and whatnot. So um, I think like what, what I love about the way that your book is written is that you can kind of see that even if the person is not necessarily saying that outright, you can see co-conditions exist. And I think what is really missing in the mental health conversation is exactly that, that co-conditions and that the, the intersectionality between the mental illnesses, even like barring what can happen to the body, even just in between mental illnesses, it exists. It's like, I mean, we talk so much about intersectionality in, I don't know, feminism, right, for example. And that's something like we all know what 
what they're ta- what a person is talking about when they say that like we're talking about disabled rights we're talking about trans rights we're talking about lgbtq um but we just don't think about that when um it comes to mental health so yeah i just went on a long rant just to say that i like that your book addresses this um in its own way Yes, and um, this is kind of a tangent, but you made me think of it now. Um, I think also um, part of the stigma is is how, um, not just in South Asian cultures, but um, as a whole, I feel like certain conditions weigh more in the stigma than others others do, which kind of further adds to like the shame and stuff like that. And what I mean by that is things such as schizophrenia weighs more than depression and anxiety, for example. Right, yeah. Yeah, one is taken much more seriously than the other, um, and is seen much more with much more fright, which is also unfortunate. Yep, and it's like you know I can kind of see like um, maybe a South Asian a family like maybe admitting or being comfortable saying that their child has one thing but not the other or something like that due to because I feel another pattern which I'm sure is totally redundant sounding now that I realized in the book is that the shame and stigma literally came back to what will others say and what will others think about us as a family or about about my child like that's like the universal barrier is is what I've noticed to to the education and acceptance gap between the generations. Yeah. Yeah. It's so gross. Why do we care so much what people think? Like, I get that we all want to feel like we belong. <laughs> I get that, that we all want to feel like we belong in, in our, in our lizard brains. But I just, I don't know. I still try to figure it out sometimes. Anyway, that's not here or there. Yeah. And another thing I noticed is, is that um, there's the idea, I feel like the the other um, common ground is um, that um, our elders did not themselves go to therapy or seek professional help or rely on others for um, the fact that they immigrated here. And obviously that comes with a lot of emotional weight, but, and they don't see it as a legit option for their kids because they themselves did not have it. But at the same time, it's like, so if you didn't go to college, you wouldn't want your child to go to college? Yeah, very true. <laughs> so can you talk about your creative process? You you did kind of talk about your creative process analytically, right? Like putting these stories together. Oh, before I get into this next question, actually, I don't think I asked you, what are your stories about? Um, so basically there's 11 individuals featured. Um, there's a part one and a part two to each. And, um, basically it's like the part one of the person's story and they're all told in third person talks about, um, their background, their childhood, their, how their personalities came about to develop their family dynamics. Um, you know, what kind of cultures they were surrounded by versus what culture was, push was nurtured upon them inside the household. And then my point in doing that is to kind of paint is, I guess my goal in, in um, my stories was to um, paint a picture of, you know, the, the person's strengths in addition to what they struggle with and, you know, who they are as a human separate from their condition. And then the part two talks about like their, um, their adulthood and how their diagnosis or recovery or treatment came about and then how they got to where they're at today. So did you find that part two was a natural break in between childhood and adulthood or between 
pre-treatment or pre-acknowledgement even and post-acknowledgement of some kind of mental health uh, problem? Yes, because um, there were some people whose struggles started out in their childhood and um, they may or may not have gotten it treated depending on who they are. And then um, that flowed naturally to how that carried on into their adolescence and adulthood. Um, there was also some people who, um, who lived a pretty simple, happy childhood when they were growing up, but then um, started to experience struggles or adversities like in their young adulthood, for example. Yeah, I think that that is an interesting natural break because, like you mentioned before, brown kids move out and go to college and that's when they start dealing with their mental health issues. That's like common trend. Yeah. And then, like I said, there's some that experienced it in childhood through childhood as well. And some got treated, some did not. But um, basically, I think for part one and part two, I picked on something that I wanted to focus on and made that the central theme. When it came to organizing what stories, organizing the stories in like chapters and in orders, what I did is I asked myself, which ones are triggering and which ones aren't. And then I put the, I put the ones that are less that don't aren't such a trigger warning like in between to like give the, the reader some breathing room and I chose to strategically um and with the story that I thought um has the most hopeful note on it and then I chose the ones that are a bit more data heavy and facts heavy to go towards the beginning mm, okay okay interesting so I'm interested in your creative process more logistically as well. I guess not the creative process, but the publishing process. How was that going through getting to the point where you were like, okay, I'm ready to write a book emotionally. I'm ready to do this. And like having to um, go through the publishing process and just keeping faith that it would work. Um, so I literally did this thing in like four months. Um, I wanted to publish it in May in honor of Mental Health Awareness Month. And um, before that, um, so my biggest struggle in my work is always getting started. But once I start, I can't stop. So um, when I was in the planning stages, um, I dealt with some writer's block. But what I did is I tried to read and look up other books that talk about mental health um, in communities of color and kind of take inspiration from that and kind of made like a little rough outline out of it. And then that's when I was like, you know, how will I find people? So then that's what made me kind of look up South Asian mental health as an internet search and then reach out to those organizations when I decided that I will tell this story in these stories in third person. Um, cause, cause basically my, I, one of my biggest struggles as a writer over the years has been, um, fluff writing is something I'm not so good at. Um, my writing styles are really straightforward and to the point, just like how I talk, but in quarantine, I'd taken a short memoir writing class, which is what, and they educated me on self-publishing. And that was when I was like, well, I want to write a book too. So, um, that's kind of how I came about, like, how do I kind of fluff up my writing style, but also write in a way that's natural to me. So that's when I, I was like, this can be a book that's kind of like journalism meets creative writing with the third person, but also with direct quotes. So writing in a fluffy way means um, writing in a way that's um, detail heavy, that's um, 
that captivates, um, that um, engages the five senses, the emotions. And then once I started my first story, then with my first person that I spoke to, I just kind of talked to them. I wrote down their story. I started playing around with um, writing the story. And then from there, it just kind of took right off. How was the process of finding these people? Um, It involved... Um, thankfully I had those organizations such as SALT, such as, um, SOCH, such as, um, SAFA, South Asian Public Health, shout out to all of them who were, um, who were generous enough when I, when I contacted them and said, do you have anyone that, do you feel like, do you have any followers, any employees that want to tell their story? They would put out submission calls on their social media and on their email listservs. And then people would reach out to me that way. Um, I had plenty of people reach out to me, no problem. The only issue was that I wasn't getting a lot of men. Mm -hmm. That is an issue. Um, Men and mental health. It is really hard to reach South Asian men in particular with mental health. Yeah. And it made me wonder, like, am I doing something wrong? Am I not reaching out to the right areas? Like I asked someone that and they were like, maybe men just aren't secure to talk about that. I feel like, yes, it is an issue with the male race in general, but I almost wonder if like white men might feel like they have less to lose if they go to a therapist or or talk about their journeys. Hmm. Interesting thought. Perhaps. Yeah. I mean, I don't know enough to, to, to comment on that, but uh, I feel like, so I have had some men on uh, previous episodes, a good number, definitely more females, but still a good number of men. Um, I want to say like 10 or 11 so far. And so maybe about a third. Um, so, but I feel like I've been very fortunate to find that uh, I have found men who are interested in talking about mental health but i will say like it's far and few there have been times where a whole episode arcs of like seven episodes in a row yep. just women women keep reaching out to me um so that's what happens yep same here um you would totally be anonymous if you need to um yeah i mean I'm, I'm hoping that with the work that i'm doing at least you know it does seem to be reaching some more men We'll see. Hopefully it changes some attitudes, at least within my little bubble of mental health, South Asian mental health uh, blogosphere yeah. on Instagram. <laughs> now, when I was struggling to find um, the, find more men, I was like, okay, should I make this an all-female story just to make it a more consistent um, for branding purposes? But then I was like, you know, if someone has a son out there who's struggling... I might as well just take what I can get. So then I took the two men that I found that were willing to talk after ask, asking a lot of acquaintances to, mm. if they knew anyone. I finally found two. And then um, I went ahead and took their stories. I was like, you know, maybe a while from today I can write a book that's solely about men. So I have lots of time to find some find people. Yeah. So that was going to be my next question for you is what's coming up next for you? Are you hoping to have more of a focus on... Uh, men's mental health at some point, like targeted focus on that? I feel like if and when I write another book, yes, um, it's more than likely that I, I want to see if I can write a book on that. But I think that in general, um, I have a passion for talking about things that are taboo to our culture in general so that they do get talked about and therefore do get accepted. So with that said, if I don't write a book on male mental health in our culture, maybe I'll write a book about sexuality in our culture and LGBT. Um, the reason being because um, I was 
also hoping that I could find someone who identifies as LGBT willing to tell their story, but um, no one's reached out to me. And then I kind of thought at the idea at the absolute last minute. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, I mean, you're just just starting to get into the conversation uh, with with this new book. And there's always there's always time for more. There's always time for more conversation. I agree. And um, so for now, um, I feel like it's going to be at least a year or two until I write another one. And for now, I want to put the word out there about what I have right now as much as possible. Um, The reason being because I feel as though like this is the time, like and especially since quarantine started is when um, I feel like our community is starting to really open up a lot and put put out movements around there about mental health. Um, and I found that through like things such as social media. So I think that now is the time to like put my book out there to help other South Asians to like not feel so alone to maybe inspire them to take action and seek out professional help for themselves or their loved ones if needed um, to also educate the elder generations with it as mm-hmm. much as possible too. love that. So where can we find you connect with you connect with your content slash book? Um, so the book itself is sold on Amazon. Um, I am I am um, selling autographed copies for one dollars one dollar less um, if you live within the U.S. because that's where I live and that's where I can ship within. Um, in terms of social media, you can find me on LinkedIn or Instagram. Cool. Okay, I will put those links in the in the episode description. Are there any questions that you wanted to answer that I haven't asked you? So um, one question that I do get um, that I have gotten a few times and that I've um, answered the same way in a few times and because I think it's important to do so is, well, two things actually. Um, so sorry, but you you had asked me earlier about things that came up. Um, I told you about things like psychosomatic, aka mind and body um, connections. I told you about the gender pattern that I picked up on. I, I told you about um, the differences in, in when people felt comfortable telling their parents versus not. One thing that I forgot to mention is, is, is suicide. Um, so what I meant by that is um, that... So, for example, um, India has like one of the highest suicide rates of so many countries. Um, And that's something I made sure to mention in my book. Um, Another ironic piece to that is of the 11 individuals I interviewed, suicide came about four times in four stories. Um, One came about when it came to losing someone to suicide. Another came about when it came to a suicide attempt. And then the two others came about in terms of suicide thought, suicidal thoughts and ideations. So one thing that I questioned about that was something along the lines of, um, you know, can suicide be, can things such as suicidal tendencies like be inherited or something? And is that something to look at mm-hmm. with ethnic groups? Yeah. That would be very interesting to look further into and really important too. I'm glad you brought that up. Yep. So that was the last pattern I should say that I, that I observed. Yeah. The prevalence of suicidality. Oh, did you see anything, uh, not to keep this conversation going forever, but did you see anything about, cause I haven't finished reading the book yet, but about like hospitalization? Um, as far as hospital, yes. Um, as far as hospitalization, um, ironically of the 11 stories that I mentioned, um, I'm pretty sure that there was only, 
two people that reported going to hospitals when they were kids. One for psychosis, another for anxiety. Okay. Yeah. I think it's one of those I asked because I think that happens a lot more than people admit back to that. Or um, I'm almost wondering if people do not go when they should because of things such as lack, lack of access to care and um, shame within the family. Definitely also possible. Yeah. Yeah, I think in general, people probably need that more than they actually admit it, whether they're South Asian or otherwise. Yep. And I think that in my book, um, there were cases, there were some stories that people told me that in my head, I wondered, I, I found it really shocking that they never had a single hospital treatment or never went to a therapist after some of the things that they that they went through. And that makes me think that it kind of came back to they didn't see it as an option for themselves. Yeah, true. Definitely. And neither did, their, did the community around them. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm very happy that you made that addition. That was a really important one. Was there anything else that you felt like you should add to the conversation before we end this episode? I don't remember if I touched on this or anything, but um, another pattern that I picked up on is um, academic pressure. Ooh, um, yeah. Sure I remember you writing about stereotypes, like comparing stereotypes Black and Hispanic community to those towards the South Asian community, which are very, very different. They're like polarizing um, and or polar opposites, I should say. And uh, the South Asian stereotype often can be like, hey, we're more educated, we're high achieving, etc. Yep. And I found I said that it was kind of ironic how um, when it comes to communities of color, there's this dual um, experience of I want to um what do you call it? Defy all the negative stereotypes against my people by achieving great things. And I feel that admitting to a mental health condition will prevent me from doing so too. I have an obligation to uphold all the positive stereotypes about my people. And I feel that admitting to a mental health condition will prevent me from doing so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ultimately they both kind of, whether the stereotype is positive or negative, quote unquote, uh, it still kind of leads to the same place of not getting help yep. when you need it. Yep. Then, of course, there's the... Um, <laughs> this was a weird thing that I struggled with. I'm not really sure why I struggled with this, but the dirty Indian stereotype. I was just always so concerned with like, oh my God, do I smell? But my there's nothing wrong with my hygiene. I have so such good hygiene. Like It makes no sense. I floss all the time. It's like a hobby of mine. Um, and... <laughs> <laughs> So I guess you talk about negative stereotypes, like that's that's the one that I can think of for for me personally. That one didn't come up in my book somehow, but I will say that I had um, people say that they felt inferior for things such as their looks, um, their body hair, um, stuff like that. Um, the food they brought to school every day in comparison to what the other children brought to school every day. Stuff like that. Yeah. You know what's interesting about the body hair movement? Now that we're talking about, there, there's kind of a conversation about like, well, we should embrace women's body hair, et cetera, et cetera, because it's natural. But it feels like white women are at the center of that conversation. And I'm like, aren't you the ones that were making fun of the Indians for being hairy? And I feel like yeah. brown girls need to be at the forefront of this movement. Yeah, it's like they're not the ones who started it. Therefore, now it's 
it's considered more acceptable or something people in our country are more open-minded to. Yeah. So I have a question for you. What kind of advice would you have for anyone who is looking to start um, any kind of creative mission regarding this discovery of mental health within the diaspora? Creative missions such as things like writing a book and stuff? Yeah, books, podcasts, uh, whatever it is. I ask this because I think like when I interview people for my podcast, I get pretty involved in their stories, I feel like. Like I because I, I don't just I I, talk, I you know, I had the conversation that we had before we recorded and then I had the conversation during recording and then I'm editing and then I'm like working on it and like work just working in posts. Like I listen to it like several times and I start getting like pretty involved in it. So I'm wondering like if you had a similar experience going through stories like several times. Um and you know even other than that, what other advice you might potentially have for people who are pursuing some kind of mission like this? Um, I would say that for those who are pursuing a mission, um, that's kind of hard to answer because everyone works differently. I would say that my um, peak productivity and energy comes in these very short, quick bursts. So um, I'm a very strategic person about how I do it, but um, I'm very dependent upon um, my creative energy in order to lead me through the process. Um, so I would say that for the average person, um, I would say um, when it comes to developing your idea, have it fully fleshed out um, in terms of a writing plan um, with short-term and long-term goals, um, what kinds of things you're going to offer, um, strengths and an analyze the strengths strengths and weaknesses of it, um, listen to similar, um, look at and listen to similar um, mediums that are done by other people around it too. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, just kind of be willing to start small. That's the other thing is that um, before I started writing, I had to kind of tell myself not to measure my success of it based on things like becoming a New York Times bestseller or something like that. I had to tell myself to just be proud of my, just be proud of myself for writing a book period because that's a large feat and um, to enjoy the process and to learn as much as I can, as much as possible and to um, be grateful if it even just changes one person's life. That's so very true. That's so very true. Uh, both of those last two points, both of them. Yeah. I don't feel like I have anything to add to that as, as a mental health creator mental health creator that's not what i am but you know what i mean i'm <laughs> content creator whatever um cool well i am very glad that we had this chat um i am looking forward to anything that you do next i'll will obviously have the links for everything um in the website in, in our website and uh in the episode description and yeah, thank you for coming on the show. Yes, thank you very much for having me. And before I end, um, since you were asking me about questions you didn't, that you may have not asked me that I wanted to get out there, this is something, there's some. There's something that um, I answer this question the same in all, pod, in all interviews that I have had so far. When I get asked, what do I want readers to take away? I want them all to take away that um, no person's mental health concerns should be disregarded or swept under the rug, regardless to who you are and what culture you come from. And no matter how much worse another individual has it in comparison to you. Love that. That's a beautiful note to end this on. So... 
that is the end of our episode. Thank you so much for listening. So you can all find Saya Unveiled on Amazon. I'll put links up wherever I can put links up on the social means. Speaking of the social means, if you have thoughts or feedback or you just want to connect, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at The Desi Condition. Or you can find us on Twitter at TDCPodcast underscore. Or you can also email us at thedesignition at gmail.com. There is no dearth of ways that you can reach us. So my name is Sanushri. I have loved recording this episode. I'm recording now after kind of a while. I hope that I get to talk to you soon. Have a wonderful day. Make good choices. Stay safe. And I will talk at you next time.